Hi, and welcome to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks, and this is episode 70. Insert music right here. Hi, welcome to another Film File. I'm Lee Ford. And I'm Andy Meekin. And it's grand to be back. In this week, we are particularly grand because, hey, you can just go and hug apparently anybody you want in the street and no one will complain (laughs) but most importantly the cinemas are open insert right here triumphant music yeah cinemas are back open (laughs) that one will do because we've got no budget (laughs) and and as andy just trumpeted it is it is an event that's worth trumpeting so a few uh a few weeks ago it was seeming a long way off andy firstly how are you doing this fair week? And secondly, excited, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, by the opening of the Cherished Church of Cinema. Oh, yeah. I mean, the buzz online this week from all the film Twitter community has all been about cinemas opening and people posting screenshots of their film bookings. You've got some people who've booked like seven films within the first five days because they just want to go and see it. And that includes like the films that are opening with is things like Peter Rabbit too. There's, there's genuine adults out there who are going to see Peter Rabbit too, not because they want to see it, but purely because the experience of cinema is back spiral Godzilla versus Kong conjuring three, even Tom and Jerry. I've seen a, a fair few people who should know better post that they're going <laughs> to see Tom and Jerry. I mean, it's, It's great. I mean, there's a mix at the moment of like films that obviously cinemas missed, but also the new content is dropping. I'm just disappointed that our cinema is going to be a bit later opening. It's the end of the month because we've got a refit going on at the moment. All that time. You're not like you've left it to the last bit, like reviewing for exams, isn't it? (laughs) You've left it to the last minute. You're doing it the night before. Yeah, but it is going to look good. All the new reworkings that they're doing inside our foyer area is looking good. Well, I say it's looking good. At the moment, it's looking like scaffold. But I can kind of see behind that to see what they're doing for it. So it is going to create a different kind of vibe in the foyer. So it's going to be great to reopen with a a kind of new kind of experience, but still a very individual experience. This is one thing that I love our cinema for. It's very individualistic in its approach to selling films to the audience. Can't wait to get back into it. I'm back and forwards from work at the moment, getting things set up. But it's oh, it's it's just exciting. Despite the fact that I'm I'm not healthy again, I I'm unwell again. It doesn't hold me back because I'm just too buzzed for things getting back to normal. Except for the hugging, I I'm, I've made this clear that I know we can all hug these days. But if anyone tries to initiate a hug with me, they might end up on their back. I decide who I hug. I'll uh, I'll I'll. I'll book you in for a hug. I'm a hugger. I'm, I'm you know, I, I wear my, yeah. my hugging on my sleeve. Uh, I, I'm yeah, there you have to, to book them weeks in advance. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I can picture there's some, there's some people who are not that close. I mean, me close friends, people like yourself, people who I've always been hugging with anyway, fine. But there's those people who are just like, they, they try to hug everyone. And those people need to accept that when I step back and go, whoa, 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 it's because you are not that important to me. You do not need to hug me. Well, there you go. If you were listening to this and you're wandering down the street, see Andy Meekin, just be careful on that hug. Think twice. (laughs) So coming up on this show, and what an action-packed show it is, we have the usual news. We have reviews that include Oxygen that appeared on Netflix just the other day. 
we will be doing our deep dive into Danny Boyle's train spotting, an icon of a film. But before we get to any of that, of course, Andy has been delving into the deep, dark web itself to bring you any nugget of film news in the sequence that by now we should have thought of something better. But we're just going to go with the news. What shall we start with? I think we need to start with what is the current ongoing big news, and that is the merger of AT&T and Discovery Incorporated, which effectively boils down to AT&T are selling all the Warner Media division to Discovery. Wow. Discovery are a mass media factual entertainment company known worldwide for Discovery Channel content, food shows, nature specials, etc. And this merger is set to create a new standalone company, which the name is still yet to be decided, whether it will be Discovery, Warner's or Warner Discovery, who knows. Uh, but it will embrace Warner Media's content, Warner Brothers Pictures, HBO, DC Comics, Cinemax, CNN, Adult Swim, etc. And the Discovery con- content, Animal Planet, Eurosport, TLC, Discovery Channel, all under one umbrella. The aim is is to make the company a stronger competitor in this global streaming market. A market which we've highlighted quite a few times is getting overly saturated with a multitude of services all battling for scraps left by Netflix, Amazon and Disney. Discovery CEO David Zaslav is going to lead the new company. And reports have it that Jason Killer of Warners, who has been behind a lot of the movement over the past couple of years, is seeking a lucrative exit deal to move on and there were rumors that he has been talking with netflix to jump ship over to them but that is just rumors we will just specify that out the gate that is not substantiated at this point in time but him seeking an exit deal kind of makes sense so we have been talking about this over the last few weeks and we've been talking about the proliferation of new streaming content new streaming channels and and some of the things that that sony have done for instance by jumping into bed with netflix to avoid putting together their own streaming channel. Uh, And we did say that eventually what will happen is one of those companies would, uh, well, they just wouldn't hit the target because all of us can only afford so much. And if it's spread out too thinly, then if you've not got great content, if you don't have Marvel and Star Wars, for instance, or the uh, uh, everything that Netflix has, then you're going to suffer. So I can still see, and, 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 Time will tell, really, as to which one will tumble first or amalgamate with with another organisation, because that seems to be the better idea and not spend all the money and give it to a company and and share the benefits rather than lose them. Yeah, I mean, that looks the most likely one, especially when there's also rumoured news that Amazon are seeking to purchase MGM for their back catalogue for around $9 And should that deal happen, it means that Amazon will acquire a film library of over 4,000 film titles, some of them Oscar-nominated or Oscar winners, as well as a very significant library of TV shows. So that will put Amazon in the complete power bracket uh, if they can manage to get through this deal. But it also takes MGM's own streaming channel off its own service, and it will become part of Amazon. And this is what we're going to see. We're going to see the services merge bit by bit. And you never know, eventually... Some company may come along and think, if we bundle all the streaming services together, maybe we can sell it to people on a house-by-house basis and call it satellite TV or cable. <laughs> well, as I, as I said before, when we discussed <laughs> this, there used to be in the States, 
there used to be the cable deals that you got uh when you signed up you would pick and choose what you wanted and i think i think eventually we're going to have to get back to that look we've only got a finite amount that we're going to spend i've always talked about i'd like to watch shudder but i'm not spending any more on another streaming service uh, i picked up now tv which yep. I've, I've kind of watched everything i i needed to on now tv so i'm cancelling that <laughs> Uh, I will jump in and out. And I think that's what more people will do. You will jump in, you know, when Marvel launches Loki, you know, you, you, you jump back in for Loki and then maybe out until the next Marvel series. I think that's the way it's going to go rather than say, I will, I will sign up to this for uh, in, infinity, you know, or, or at least a year. Don't, nobody wants those contracts. Uh, the whole merger between AT&T and Discovery will be an ongoing process and is expected to be completed by the middle of 2022, subject to shareholder and regulatory approvals. But there's not expected to be any resistance to the the move to merge the two companies. The shareholders apparently are already pretty much behind it and the regulation board have no reason to dismiss it. After all, they allowed Disney and Fox to merge. Um, now, obviously... Discovery have already uncovered the complete real truth that comes with such a deal. As you could imagine, a certain fan base have now flocked to share a certain hashtag on all the Discovery social feeds yesterday, <laughs> spamming them completely. Well done, Discovery. This is in your court now. Have fun with it. <laughs> yeah. You don't have to read between the lines too much to know who we're talking about. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Uh, sticking kind of with Warner's Media and HBO, etc. Um, according to a deadline report this week, Denny Villeneuve's Dune will now not be streaming at the same time as cinema release. Instead, the film is going to premiere at Venice in September and then gets a theatrical exclusive release in October. And then probably around mid-November, it will move over to the streaming service. Now, whilst we all got very excited when we read that news and went, yay, it's a win. Warner Brothers distribution chief, a few day, Jeff Goldstein, a few days later, turned around and says, well, that's news to us. Our plan is still a simultaneous HBO Max and cinema release. But apparently Deadline got this information from some of the information coming out relating to the merger. So it seems that there's a lot of, in amongst all the upheaval going on, there's a lot of potentially misinformation or secret information that wasn't supposed to be released that is getting leaked left, right and centre. So at this point in time, anything you hear to do with Warner's cinemas and streaming, you should take everything with a pinch of salt until we get something concrete because it's going to be discussion and speculation central as a result of the merger. And of course, all these things are going to be heavily negotiated. Even as we speak, people are going to be talking about it, discussing it and seeing what the best ultimately profitable conclusion is to to this particular issue i heard um that both shang chi and uh free guy have got kind of an extended run before it goes to streaming on on disney plus yes uh, bob chapek has stated that there's no plans to drop them onto disney plus premier access with them both intending to have the 45 days, which is the new cinema exclusivity window, before opening on the streaming service. This came on the back of news that Disney's Jungle Cruise, which stars Rock the Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt, which will be arriving on screens and also Disney Plus premiere on July the 30th, which will join Black Widow and Cruella as premiere access titles. So it's it seems that the ones which are close to releasing are the ones that they're doing the premiere access, but the ones that are 
a couple of months away, they're being a bit more confident with and saying, no, the cinemas can have them for 45 days because by that point, pretty much every cinema will be open worldwide. And that applies to us in the UK as well. I mean, we are able to, if we would like, to see Black Widow in the cinema, but we can watch it on Disney Premier if we if we want to. Yeah, it's going to be... It, it, I mean, Black Widow is going to be the true tester to see what people really want. And I... I I do think that people want to see a Marvel film on the big screen. They don't want to pay to see it at home. I agree. Now, on the back of this news, there's also news of concern with Shang-Chi and Eternals that both films might not make the Chinese markets. Um, A new report for the Phase 4 for the Chinese market left the purpose of films out of the listings. Okay, I can see several reasons as as to why that might be the case, especially with Eternals. It, there's political controversies that cause issues with thing, films getting released in China. The government in China need to authorise and approve and pass any film that isn't a Chinese-made film getting released on their territory. And both these films have a Chinese connection, but both of them have had some issues around them. Shang-Chi has been plagued with complaints over the representation of the Mandarin with accusations that it's culturally insensitive. And Eternals director, Chloe Zhao, has been shunned by China completely. She's blacklisted by the whole country, which also saw a total blackout of news of her Oscar win. Nothing was reported in China about her Oscar win. So both films have that controversy, even though they seem like they'd be perfectly suited for the Chinese market. They probably won't make it over there. Which will be a a knock on their box office because China holds a big sway on international box office now. Especially on your big blockbusters like your Marvel films. So it's it could still happen, but Marvel have a lot of negotiating to do before it can get through, and they might get released in heavily censored forms, and you don't want that, let's be honest. Yeah. I've got a bit of news. Uh, some casting news. Um, Natalie Emmanuel will be back on our screens this summer, returning as the computer hacker Ramsey in The Fast and Furious 9. Uh, but her next film, she'll swap uh, from high octane to, um, to to blood, basically. She'll be starring alongside Garrett Hedlund in The Bride, which is inspired by Bram Stoker's Dracula. The film is set in the present day and finds a young woman, played by Emmanuel, swept off her feet by a dashing man who one assumes this is Hedlund. Uh, but even as she's falling in love, she discovers a gothic conspiracy. So this is uh, um, another play on Dracula. Yeah. Have you heard about this? Directed by uh, Jessica Ed Thompson. And she's also rewritten the script originally pitched and worked on by Blair Butler. Yeah, I, I spotted this one. Um, it, it intrigues me. Garrett Hedlund, he was expected to hit the big time when Tron Legacy came out and then just was never really found his feet in cinema. I'm interested to see this. I'm loving the contemporary takes that we're starting to see on classic horrors. And I'm intrigued to see whether they manage to tap into this one. Yeah. Or whether it becomes, well, do you remember, was it Dracula 2000? Ooh. Yeah, I try not to remember that one. I, I try to forget it. <laughs> well, talking of vampires, when you when you can't put a stake anywhere without putting it into a, a, another vampire movie, Travis Knight, who we really, really like here on the show, directed Bumblebee, is in talks to direct apocalyptical vampire film for Netflix. Yeah, I mean, Travis Knight, you know, the CEO of Leica Entertainment, and he gave us Bumblebee. So I, I will love him forever just for that. Uh, but... The storyline for this one, Uprising, is 
adapted from Raymond Villarreal's novel, A People's History of the Vampire Uprising. And it tells of a global virus outbreak. Oh, this sounds familiar. <laughs> uh, that turns people into vampires. Into this world, CIA agent Lauren Webb must uncover the truth behind a growing uprising. See where they got the title oh, from? That threatens to wipe out humanity. It sounds like a nice post-apocalyptic vampire film. And I've got utter confidence in anything that Travis Knight touches. Yeah. So I am I am definitely looking forward to this one. It's, a, it's an interesting concept, nice sci-fi concept. And it kind of sounds like familiar territory, but under, under Knight's direction, then I expect something much more unique. Now, one thing that is far too familiar territory, and maybe, uh, maybe it shouldn't be made, but, you know... Let's be honest. My first thought after seeing the recent Pet Cemetery adaptation wasn't, hey, I want more of that. However, because the film only cost 21 million and took over 120 million at the box office, more is exactly what we're getting. Writer Lindsay Beer has signed to direct the film, which is her first directorial feature. And it's based on a draft she co-wrote with Jeff Buhler. And the film will be a straight to streaming flick. Or should that be straight to steaming flick? Oh, harsh there. Harsh. We'll bury this one in the kitty litter, I can tell you. <laughs> I might be wrong. The sequel might do a better job than what that mess that we saw on the screen was. But really, do we really want a Pet Cemetery franchise? We had that in the past and it was garbage then. We don't need it now. Yeah, I've got I've got somewhat amount of love for the original Mary Lambert version. At least it was accurate to the book. It feels terribly, terribly dated and was and I thought was thought was miscast. That was the problem with it. However, it stayed true to the novel, which the recent remake, even though it had a couple of nice touches, which I thought worked, it, it liked that that important element in a horror film. It wasn't scary. It, there was very little in the way of thrills. Um, ultimately, very, very disappointing. Yeah. So who knows? There's, it's, I'm not holding my breath for a sequel, but we'll just see what it delivers. We'll just see. Simple as that. Now, recently, there was a bit of, um, a bit of upset in the Quiet Place 2 camp with John Krasinski and Emily Blunt being disappointed at Paramount's plans to fast-track the film 45 days after a cinema release to this Paramount Plus streaming service. However, it seems that not only has that dispute clearly been resolved, but John Krasinski has now signed a first-look deal with Paramount. Ah, everything worked out in the wash. Yeah, it, it, it shows there's confidence between Paramount and Krasinski on both sides of uh, the discussions going forwards. It's the next film that's going to be made under this deal is going to be written and directed by Krasinski and will star himself and my favorite Ryan Reynolds, whose own production company also signed a first look deal for Paramount very recently. So Paramount seems to be building this little stable of names, uh, some which are known for small. Let me, John Krasinski is known for tight, small, low budget horrors. And then, Reynolds is known for comedy blockbusters. So the Paramount stable, the Paramount brand are trying to get their own little creative force by the looks of it. Mm. Speaking of creative forces, John Boyega and Joe Cornish. Did you get, did you see Attack the Block back in 2011? I did. And you know what? I wasn't enamored by it. I like, loved the idea. I thought the idea was fantastic. And I thought, thought the characterization and the and, and the look of the movie and the direction of it and the humor everything worked i couldn't empathize with those characters from the get-go because they created that problem and for me it was a major issue 
uh, if they hadn't created the problem, there would have been no problem. So they were there trying to save anything. I mean, the, the upside is it made uh, John Boyega uh, the star that he is. And I'm glad that he's he's coming back for a possible sequel. Yes, uh, this sequel has been mooted regularly over the past 10 years because the first film was a, a low-key success that grew a cult following. Uh, the, the first film, for those who have not seen it, follows a group of mates who find themselves defending their council flats from an alien invasion. And Cornish is going to write, direct and produce Attack the Block 2. They might get another title. Who knows? Uh, but John Boyega is going to rejoin him for it and expect more of the same, maybe with a bit of a bigger budget now that they know the success of the, f- the first one had, uh, particularly when it went to home release. Yeah, excellent. I mean, I'm, I'm interested in this. Uh, I've got a lot of love for Joe Cornish. I have done since way back on the Adam and Joe show. I love his sense of humor. I love his sense of storytelling. And I'm intrigued to see what you can do with a sequel. Excellent, yeah. Remember last week when we were talking about Knives Out 2? We did. We... we had the breaking news that Edward Norton and Dave Bautista had joined the cast. Well, I've, I've, I've already figured out the ending of, uh, of the sequel by your, by your uh, next comment on the cast. Literally within days of our last reporting, two more names dropped, Janelle Monet and Catherine Hart. It was Agatha all everyone along. Everyone has now said, that's it. It was Agatha all along. <laughs> I mean, it probably it won't be. She's probably in there as a complete red herring. But you know what? What marvellous, marvellous cast this is turning out to be. This is going to be, because the first Knives Out, that was just a gem of names all thrown together. And I can't wait to see what other names we get thrown into this mix. Excellent. This is great. I cannot wait. Cannot wait. Speaking of also... More murder mysteries going on. Enola Holmes 2 is officially greenlit and officially go. Millie Bobby yeah, Brown and Henry one. Cavill are both confirmed to be returning. Enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, it was a, it was a pleasurable alternate take on the Sherlock Holmes aspect. Uh, writer Jack Thorne and director Harry Bradbeer are also back on board for this second film, which will follow Sherlock and Mycroft's younger sister, who outsmarts them on cases once again. I'm looking forward to that one. Count me in. Casting news now... Bruce Willis and John Travolta last were on screen together way back in Pulp Fiction. Well, they're going to be teaming up. Well, not exactly teaming up. They're going to be opposite each other in an action film called Paradise City from Chuck Russell. Willis will play a bounty hunter seeking to wreak vengeance against Travolta's crime boss who murdered his family. It's being tonally compared in all pictures to uh, Michael Mann's Miami Vice and filming is kicking off this week. I think I think you're aiming high if you want to compare yourself to man. Yeah, I think also the fact that uh, it's the reunion that nobody ever really wanted, but it is good to see Chuck Russell come <laughs> back because Chuck Russell was a uh, was a really good genre director. If I remember correctly, he did the Blob remake, which was stunning. So I'm looking forward to seeing Chuck Russell back yes. on the screen. Yeah, I mean that, that that Blob remake was a remake that maybe shouldn't have been made, but I'm so glad it did. It was so good. Um, yeah, it was a it was a pure B movie joy. It was it was one of those nice modern B movies that knew what it was and played with it. And finally, Apple TV Plus, who I've said multiple times, are building a quality catalogue of entertainment. Not enough to subscribe to at this point in time, but they are put in a firm bedrock. Well, they've now scored a deal with A24 for the rights to Joel Cohen's first solo outing, okay. The Tragedy of Macbeth which will star Francis McDormand and Denzel Washington. 
Brendan Gleeson, Corey Hawkins, Sean Patrick Thomas and Brian Thompson will co-star alongside the two. And it'll be a new take on the classic Shakespeare play. It also marks the first time that Joel Cohen has made a film without his brother, Ethan. That's the most intriguing aspect of this, more than more than where it's going to end up, is is uh, them finally, finally working apart. I know that he's he's written as a, as a novelist individually, but as a filmmaker, that's that's new ground. It's one of them that you don't know whether it's the partnership that makes their films so immersive and enjoyable or whether each of them have got their own individual voice that can stand on their own. And this is our first chance to find out. Mm. And that is the news. If you're enjoying The Film File, then you should subscribe. It doesn't cost you anything. In fact, it's free. It's so free that it is the free guy of podcasts. All you have to do is go to your favourite podcasting platform, hit subscribe, and you'll get The Film File every week delivered straight into your ear rolls. So if you want to get in touch with us here at The Film File, you can do so because we are everywhere. Andy, how do people get in touch with us here at The Film File? You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at Film File UK, on Instagram, Film File UK, or you can email us, except for any spam emails. I'm not interested in spam unless it's a tin of pink meat. Uh, podcast at filmfile.com. UK. So as you know, each week we have been delivering a deep dive and whether we're going to continue with a deep dive, I guess we'll have to wait to see whether we are back into the cinemas. But our deep dive for this week is a British piece of iconography. It came out unbelievably in 1996. It changed British cinema. It made big stars out of its director and out of its leading man. It was everywhere and anywhere it was the cultural icon of its time train spotting the black comedy directed by danny boyle and starring ewan mcgregor choose life choose a job choose a career choose a family choose a big television you're a quiet sensitive type a little bit crazy a little bit bad Choose washing machines, cars, compact displays, and dental insurance. You lied on your application. Only to get my foot in the door. What exactly attracts you to the leisure industry? In a word, pleasure. Like, more pleasure than other people's leisure. He's always been lacking in moral fibre. He knows a lot about Sean Connery. That's hardly a substitute. Do you see the beast? Have you got it in your sight? Clear enough, Mitch Moneypenny. Choose sitting on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing game shows, stuffing junk food into your mouth. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Choose good health and a career. Choose your friends. Choose your future. Choose life. Where to start with Trainspotting? It was released to critical acclaim, had some backlash, even from the government. It's regarded as one of the best British films of the 90s. It's ranked 10th by the British Film Institute in its list of top British films of the 20th century. And in 2004, it was voted the best Scottish film of all time. But I don't know what it was competing against. <laughs> and in 2017, a poll of 150 actors, directors and writers Producers and critics for Time Out magazine ranked it the 10th best British film ever. And also there was a sequel, T2, Trainspotting, which was released in January 2017. 
chain spotting when it came out was everywhere mtv because it had the iggy pop music video the style of the poster became a part of the brit pop movement and became that cool britannia it was young it was hip it was dynamic we'd never seen anything like it it was a film of its time but it's a film that you look back and you still think fabulous or do you or do you, Andy Meakin? Yes, you certainly do. I revisited both Train Spotting and Train Spotting 2 this past week and loved them all over again. Um, the, the first film, adapted from the novel by Irvin Welsh, is a look at a disenfranchised group of 20-somethings who inhabit the world of drug addiction. The film tapped, as you hinted at, perfectly into that era's consciousness of the 90s, even before it released, thanks to an impactful marketing campaign which saw character posters emblazoned on phone booths, bus stops, any spare space in Sheffield city centre. You saw a character poster, Renton, Diane, Begbie, leaning forwards, but giving the Vs up, looking cold and wet, whatever poses they were in with the train spotting down the side and then arrival date. And that was the release date. And you knew from seeing those posters that this was going to be something different. This was going to this was something that stands out. You didn't recognise any of the cast, except maybe Robert Carlyle, who uh, was gaining a bit of publicity thanks to his TV roles at that point in time. But Ewan McGregor was an, pretty much an unknown. And there was also a series of poster images, such as Ewan McGregor climbing out of a toilet or the infamous Choose Life philosophy that spoke to folk of a certain age group. And suffice to say, at the age of 23, when the film came out, I was that target age group. I'd flunked university. I was scratching a living on minimum wage in a dead-end job. I clung to nightclubs and drinking, and perhaps a smoke or two, to give my existence some meaning. And train spotting spoke to me. Even though I had never been in deep into hard narcotics, I'd like to state that here, I've never been down the junkie route. But the culture that it reflected, it it was the culture that I could see around me at that age group. Um, McGregor had worked with Danny Boyle on Shallow Grave beforehand, which I had I'd seen. I was one of about the five people in the UK who actually saw that film uh, two years earlier. And even though that was a great film, it was train spotting that really put him on the map and made him the star that he is today. As the lead voice in the film, Renton, He's the narrator taking us through this world that is exciting, dangerous, melancholy. He goes through the highs, the lows, the overdoses and more in a very breezy. And I forgot, it's a breezy 90 minutes runtime. Wow. You see, I'd forgotten that element to it. Absolutely. To get so much of the story, because anyone who's read the book, and I've read the book a few times, will know that it's quite quite a complex book. And it's quite a hard book to read because it is all told like, it's all told in the tone of voice of each of the characters of the story, including the accent. Yeah, it's got a kind of a, almost a clockwork orangey type way in <laughs> that, that it's, it, there's a certain language so to it. So it was always considered like to be a hard f- book to adapt to film, but Boyle managed to bring it perfectly to screen. And bearing in mind this was Boyle's second film outing, he put a mark on cinema overall with his style. I remember it being sold at the time and it had that that same kind of coolness that, well, say Pulp Fiction had. And, and I know um, McDonald, one of the uh, one of the producers, tried to sell it that way, especially in, in, in the States market. But it did have a cool quality to it. I mean, it had an amazing cast of, of people who've now gone on 
to other things all over the place. I mean, Ewan McGregor we talked about. Uh, Ewan Bremner has now is, is a character actor. Johnny Lee Miller went from there, went straight over to Hollywood. Robert Carlyle, as you said. Uh, Kelly MacDonald, who's who's done amazingly well and has just come off our screens with uh, Line of Duty. So it had a, had a fantastic, fantastic uh, young cast who who gave it their all. It was almost like this is going to be the last film that we're ever in, so we'll we'll just be spot on perfect. It then, of course, it, it launched as, as any successful British film does, this hope that we were going to have um, a, a new reign of, of British movie making. And a lot of films did follow off the back end of train spotting that, that had a certain influence from it, but nothing did it in the way that train spotting did. It, it, it hit the nerve exactly at the right time with exactly the right marketing with exactly the right budget and with exactly the right cast everything is the perfect storm for this one to be to be released in um, while other films even other films based around the authors of the works just didn't didn't connect you can say almost the same thing of what happened with tarantino when tarantino came out you got a lot of subpar tarantino-esque films with the occasional good ones that that stand out but it was uh, uh, it was a moment in time that captured that particular period, that captured that enthusiasm for the whole cool Britannia feel that was going off. You had a, a, the rise in, in, in Britpop and British music. It was cool to be British. You've got the Blair government coming in around the same time. Everything about that was, was the perfect storm. And it's a film that I've seen many, many times and, and is highly, highly quotable. Uh, and it's and it's just the perfect snapshot of that particular period. And when you think back to nineteen ninety six, as I said before, the timing was absolutely, absolutely spot on. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a fun, genuinely funny. I, I, every time I rewatch it, I forget how genuinely belly laugh funny some of the moments are. It's emotional. It's sharply scripted. It's stylish. Boyle's direction, coupled with Brian Tofano's cinematography give a unique visual feel with fantastical and sometimes sickening and harrowing images to draw us into the drug-fueled world of Renton and his mates. But it's the music as well. Every, you've already said, like, the cast, everything was perfect, but the music is so perfectly placed. This film has some of the best needle drops ever committed to film that you can get. As, even now, if Iggy Pop's Lust for Life starts, I already have going through my head, choose life, choose a job. Choose a family. If Perfect <laughs> yeah. Day comes on, I can, I feel myself sinking into a carpet. Yet it's all, every tune that is used within this, Blondie's Atomic, you can remember the moment in the film. Yeah, which was done by Sleeper, yeah. if I remember. Yeah, and you can, you can get drawn. Uh, they, into, so they tied into it. They tied into the, what was going on. perfect use of the best music around. And, you know, it, <laughs> it, it made Underworld's Born Slippy actually be a hit which that takes some achievement because they didn't really do much after that so yeah when the film was released it sparked controversy all over the place i remember watching on tv uh, a government minister talking about it glorifying uh, drug abuse it turns out that she'd never seen the film the same in the u.s uh u.n senator bob dole who was uh, i think uh, a presidential campaign at the time accused it of moral depravity and glorifying drug use However, later admitted that he'd never seen it. So, and Andrew McDonald responded to those claims, saying we were determined to show why people took drugs and you had to show that it was fun and also that it was awful. 
and the music and humor that makes people feel that it glamorizes drugs. But there is the the terrible downside. There's the withdrawal scene. It, it doesn't glamorize it, but it glamorizes being youthful. And, and that's why the film sticks. By the close of Train Spotting, it was one of those films that even though it told so much story, you got to the end and you thought, oh, I want to know what happened to these people next. These the, because you fell in love with the characters. The characters felt so real. You wanted to know where did Renton go at the end? What happened to Begbie? What happened to Spud? What happened to Sick Boy? Did Renton get back with Diane or what? And answers to those initially came via the follow-up novel Porno. But for the film incarnations would arrive 20 years later, as you've said, when T2 train spotting got released. I remember reading an interview in the early part of the 2000s with Danny Boyle. When he was asked, was he going to look at doing a sequel to Train Spotting? And he said that he'd love to do it and he'd love to set it like 10, 15 years after the first film. But I'm not going to use his exact word, but he called them some unquotable names. Um, all refused to get old. <laughs> and he was basically referring to the fact that all of his cast from this film didn't age. You look at them and you just go, yeah, I can't. you can't play someone 15 years on when you only look two days on from when you were in the film. So he wanted to wait until they looked like they'd grown up a bit and to be able to give a reason to tap back into their lives. And when T2 came out, it got a very mixed reaction from people who were expecting one kind of film because it delivered something completely different to what Trainspotting was. It did. I mean, to get there, as you've said, Ewan McGregor had to you know, buddy up to, to Danny Boyle. They'd fallen out over casting decisions for the beach. It didn't look for a long time that they would ever work together, and they needed to. They needed to have to uh, resolve those differences, and they did, and they had uh, they held meetings saying, you know, they, they would work together again, and they did. I like Train Spotting too. Now, I like it, but I, will, I, I don't go back to it. Uh, I enjoyed the movie that I saw. It, it didn't it didn't disgrace the the original, but it, what it lacked was that urgency. Again, because that urgency was made by people in their 20s and now people in their 40s onwards don't have that sense of urgency that, that was in, uh, in in 1996. So there's a lot of elements that I did. I like the fact that um, it, it took a different route. It dealt with middle-aged. It, it dealt with the fact of having been somebody and what that means and the legacy of having been somebody. And what you're going to do for the future when the future still, even in your uh, your later years, can be uncertain. There, there was lots and lots of elements that I liked about it, but it didn't have, and this was always going to be the problem with T2, it didn't have that that knockout effect that the original Train Spotting did. It's a very good film with a great cast that talks about some interesting ideas. And while not a strictly an adaptation of porno, it does have a lot to say. And it has a lot to say for the generation who've grown up since then. Yeah, the original film um, in the 90s reflected the mindset of the mid-20s youth, lost for direction, trying to find themselves. T2 reflected the mindset of your late 40s. You're approaching middle age, reflecting on missed opportunities, past mistakes. And again, I was the age group perfectly placed for that film. I'd got to that stage in my life where... I kind of had a direction, but I wasn't sure if I was going in the right direction. And as you know, well, is only a year later, I moved on from where I was stable in an employment. 
and took a risk and moved on to something else because I was at that age where I was questioning things, where I was starting to wonder, was this what I wanted to do with my life? T2 tapped into me completely and rewatching it. You say that it's not one that you go back to. And it wasn't for me until this week when I rewatched it and I suddenly got it all over again. And now I think it's going to be constantly, whenever I re- revisit train spotting, I'm going to go straight on to T2 straight afterwards because I think they bookend each other beautifully. Um, what I found interesting with T2 is that it made me look back at the character of Spud a lot more because in the first film, he was a very slight character. He was comic relief, but he was a bit of a pitiful character. But you now see that he was the actual heart of that group that held them together. Because yeah, T2 focused a lot on how he never got out of that drug addiction. Without Renton there, he fell apart. And with him falling apart, the whole group dissipated. But he is the character that each of the group seemed to still relate to in one way or the other. Absolutely marvellous to see how that character got really developed and grew over T2. The pair of films are held in high regard for me due to their direct connectivity to my own life. But they are just both great examples of taking themes of the time and representing them in a stylish manner on screen. And I think it's it's a testament to Danny Boyle's directorial career that he more or less started with one of them and is mo- like one of his most recent is the other one. And they both reflect completely different tones. Absolutely marvellous films. There's always been discussion of a third train spotting film. It was suggested uh, from a story by Irving Wells, the Blade artist, that there might be a spin-off centred around the character of Begbie. Uh, Irving Welsh has also hinted that a chain spotting television series is possible. I think it's time to put those characters to bed and leave them in your memory. But what a memory and what a great pair of films, but what an utterly uh, defining film of an era. Here, here. Okay, so that's Train Spotting, but let's talk about some of the films that you can see right now on some of the streaming services. Let's kick off, Andy, with a film that unusually we've both seen. Uh, it landed on Netflix this week. It's Alexandra Arger's Oxygen. So it, it was obvious that the pair of us were both going to see this film because when this went up on the splash on Netflix, I just saw it, went, oh, sci-fi. Oh, it's right up my alley. It looks glossy. Watch it. And I just knew as I was watching it that Lee probably did exactly the same thing, probably at exactly the same minute, <laughs> uh, yeah. to be honest with you. <laughs> yeah, with that in sync now. Um, yeah, directed, as I said, by Alexander Arja, uh, straight to uh, straight to Netflix, which is not a downside to uh, anything about it being a straight to streaming, because this is a really genuinely interesting, clever, uh, fun uh, science fiction film. So the film centers around a woman, Melanie Laurent, who you remember from Inglorious Bastard, awakens in a futuristic crowd chamber with no idea of where she is, how she got there, or even who she is, only going by the moniker of Omicron 267. But the real problem is her pod is rapidly running out of oxygen. This was an an absolute blast. I thought it was going to be a kind of a sci-fi version of the Ryan Reynolds movie, uh, Buried. But it has so many twists and turns, so many directions that it goes into, that it, it kind of kept me guessing. I thought as a downside, it had maybe two or three ideas too much because it is packed with them. But I, in general, kept me guessing right to the very end. It was very, very smart. Um, 
and and one of those that it looked like it was going to be one thing and then became something else entirely. Yeah, completely agree. Um, I, I was gripped from the start. I again, like you, you said, thought this might looks like a sci-fi version of Buried, and whilst it's thematically similar, you've got the single coffin-like container setting and even some of the occasional shots are very similar there's a shot which pans away from um, her lying in there and it goes to blackness all around and that was purely taken from buried but this time it's not just that one person in there because there's an ai system called milo which she communicates with and uses to try to communicate with the outside world or open the chamber and get the override codes etc etc and it's from these discussions that she has with people in the outside world that the puzzle starts to get pieced together as to where she actually is because and indeed who she is as she starts to get flashes of memory remembering small details of her past like you say there's maybe one or two more ideas in this film than what there needs to be but i don't think it got in the way too much and i didn't at any point not feel engaged or get frustrated with the manner in which it was playing. Yes, there's a lot of tropes in there. You've got a countdown timer in the form of the oxygen there, and you just know when there's a countdown timer, it's always going to go down to the knuckle. But you don't care. You don't care that the tropes are there because it's the engaging performance by Melanie Laurent that really draws you in. And that's what we said when um, Buried originally came out, when we discussed Buried, is that when you have a single actor on screen for such a time it needs to be someone who you can connect to yeah it holds the frame all the way through as to uh, not only give a terrific performance but holds your attention for the entire movie there's a, a marvelous a marvelous midpoint reveal in the film that starts to put the puzzle completely into perspective and it's played so beautifully and visually we can't talk about it because it'll just be huge spoilers but when you get to when you get to the reveals of who she is, it 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 it, it blew me away. It made my jaw completely drop to the floor. I had to pick it back up and strap it back on. Visually superb, well handled by Alexander Azure. Absolutely recommended. As you said, Lee, the you know this dropped on Netflix, but don't let that be any testimony to its quality because this is a film that I would love to have seen on the big screen as well and I think Netflix now have that prestige behind them that you don't instantly dismiss any films that go straight to them because let's be honest they've won awards yeah no I totally agree apart from a um, slightly feeling let down in the last act I thought it was original unique uh Laurent is just absolutely perfect the whole way through and if you want to watch something that will make you tense from the first opening frame, then this is the film for you. Andy, what else have you seen? So I've also seen, now this is one that I had my eye on, and that's The Woman in the Window. My neighbor Jane, she's been stabbed. Detective Little, NYPD. Where's Jane? Mr. Russell believes that you made a mistake. You have never met my wife. Ma'am, you all right? I know Jane. Jane's been in my house. I'm Jane Russell. Crazy. I know what I saw. They're all hiding something. Oh, you you will not I've never met my mother. Stop, Stop watching our house. Your doctor said that your meds can cause hallucinations. I'm not hallucinating. 
think there is somebody in my house. Don't go looking into other people's houses. You won't like what you see. which sees Amy Adams play an agoraphobic child psychologist who's watching a family across the street via her window. But a new family move in and she witnesses what she believes is a brutal crime. But she can't be sure of what's really happened. And the film draws some rear window vibes. Julianne Moore, Gary Oldman and Anthony Mackie star alongside her. And it's a, got a cast and a premise that surely should deliver something strong. But sadly not. It ends up feeling like an attempt to mash Hitchcock and David Fincher together, but with no real skill behind it. Uh, Joe Wright is the director on this one, and he's a director who generally leaves me feeling a little cold anyway. His style often gets in the way of the material, Pride and Prejudice, Anna Karenina, Pan. Even Hannah, I thought, was great ideas, but I didn't like his style. There's only Atonement and Darkest Hour that managed to connect somewhat, but both of them are both films that have no interest in going back to. And here, he fails to use the confined location to any great effect, and the muddled approach in trying to sow confusion as to whether Adams's character is having a mental breakdown just makes the overall story drag somewhat. It's a shame because the names involved in this film and the concept, it should have been so much more than the average experience that it was this film's been sat on the shelf for several years now it was written and directed it tested poorly it was basically reshot with a a different director even though you can't see that in the in the credits it was a film that then after it had been reworked rescripted it still didn't work and it's interesting that what initially on paper looks like a pretty good idea and it has a has a great cast connected to it and we we both share the love for Amy Adams it just one of those occasions where the movie didn't work and a studio tried to save it and it kind of got pushed out now this is, is one of those films that just got pushed out and hopefully would disappear onto Netflix yep disappointing um is it worth watching as a curiosity only if you want to see good actors throw their careers away. Uh, however, it is better than the next film, which is The Secrets We Keep. Okay, now I, I thought this looked quite intriguing, but you're going to tell me not. Again, this is a great concept with, uh, you know, Numi Rapace is a Romanian gypsy who fled to the US at the end of the Second World War. She settled into her new suburban life, but it's interrupted when she encounters one of the German soldiers who attacked and massacred her family. She kidnaps him and seeks to get him to admit to his past. But his story is very different, and her husband must decide who to trust as things escalate. Sounds good. Sounds gripping and tense. Sounds like it could play really well with the who's actually telling the truth there. Is, is she misremembering things? Because she struggles to remember the full events, but can remember specific details. And sadly, the film was anything but that. It simply meanders along at a plodding pace, and despite a relatively short runtime, doesn't really lean into any tension that it could offer too much. It's another lacklustre production that would have floundered in a cinema release. And so, guess what? It became a Sky original. That tagline that always marks most films as forgettable. <laughs> this was another one that I was kind of looking forward to because I read up on it and I was like, yeah, that sounds like an interesting concept, but it's just so poorly executed. And it left me feeling nonchalant at the end of it. But... The true gem this week, the film that made everything that I've already spoken about look so much better. Oh dear, we keep we keep moving. The I mean, I'm ending on, on the 
stuff note here. There's a film that was made in 2019 that finally hit the UK onto Sky this week, and that's called Buddy Games. Josh Dumal co-wrote, directed, and stars alongside Dax Shepard, Kevin Dillon, Olivia Munn, and a load of other people who really should know better, but then again, have seen most of their back catalogue. They don't. In a film that was delayed, not because of COVID, but because it's utter trash. It's a film in which a bunch of buddies reunite to take part in a series of mental and physical challenges that they call the buddy games. It was a film that is clearly conceived when someone drunkenly watched Tag and thought, hey, we can tap into that. It's allegedly a comedy. It failed to provide any laughs over its runtime that outstayed its welcome after the first 15 minutes. And the bunch of so-called friends have zero chemistry between them. And it, it's a film that could be summed up for how unfunny it is by the end credit outtakes. Now, even the worst of films that I've seen, when it's had end credit outtakes, they've at least got a bit of a chuckle. Because when you see mistakes happen, you see them all having fun on set and going, oh, I can't believe you did that again. You kind of like can't help but go, oh, well, at least someone had fun with this film. With this one, the end credit outtakes were dreadful. There was nothing hilarious within them. And all that it made me notice is that this cast have no chemistry with each other. So why they were all working in what was clearly Josh Dumal's pet project to showcase his own ego, I don't know. These guys aren't naturally funny. There's no chemistry in real life. There was nothing in this film that made me even smile, except for once the final end credit rolled off and I realised I could watch something else. Well, I'll be avoiding <laughs> that one based on that recommendation, Andy, or lack of recommendation. Moving on, shall we, from that sounds of um, uh, sort of disaster I, I area? I don't think I could about... go down any, downhill any further, even if Adam Sandler was to drop a film I'm going to pull you back. <laughs> Let me pull you back. So quickly, Andy, before we go, uh, what is coming up on our streaming services this so week? So this week, we've been talking about it so much, pretty much for the past year, but we'll finally get to see on Netflix... Zack Snyder's Army of the Dead. It lands this weekend. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'm quite excited to see it, and we will be talking about it next week. Will we like it? Will Zack have become my best buddy, or will it start a, another Justice League-esque rant? Tune in next week to find out. Um, also on Netflix, just in case that doesn't work for me, Master of None Season 3 lands. Aziz Ansari isn't going to be the centre of attention on this one, but he has written and worked on directing on the episodes, which are going to focus on Lena Waithe and Naomi Aki's Denise and Alicia and their relationship following the highs and lows of their love over the episodes. I love Master of None. I love the storytelling aspect of it. So this is a series that I am probably going to binge in one day. Over on Amazon, those people who didn't watch Detective Pikachu when it came out at the cinemas all those years ago when cinemas were open, um, that lands this week. And on Disney+, Plus, Marvel's MODOK animated series lands for a bit of Marvel fun. Oh, I didn't realise that, that MODOK was landing uh, in the UK. I thought, I thought we had to sort of uh, wait. I forget about Disney+. Plus. Can't wait to see that one. As you know, just before we go every week, we do what we call our neat things. Those are things that we've uh, read, uh, seen, played, uh, whatever we consider to be the standout neat thing of the week. And uh, Andy, as ever, goes first. Andy, what is your neat thing over the last week? And I know what it isn't, and that's the buddy <laughs> games, but what is your neat thing for this week? My neat thing actually ties into a few weeks ago when we spoke about George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. 
so as part of that discussion, okay. we talked about like the whole series and there was a brief mention of his comic book series, Empire of the Dead. I've tracked down. I've tracked I've it down because neither of us had read it. I've tracked it down. I've got all three volumes. I'm getting close to the end of volume one at the moment and I am loving it. Volume one has art by Alex Maleev, whose dark, sketchy kind of art perfectly fits the story that Romero's come up with. And the story is a spiritual continuation of the films. Some references are in there that may place them directly connected to one or two of the films. And it plays the tropes that Romero himself created. But it expands on his returning memory aspect of zombies that the films toyed with. And then it adds in, and only Romero can get away with doing this in a zombie, real-life, brutal experience. It throws vampires into the mix. And initially, at the end of the first issue, when I got to the vampire bit, I was like, oh. But then I continued reading and went, oh. And it it works. <laughs> Romero was a masterful storyteller. And who'd have thought that in comic book format, he would have provided one of the best entries into his dead series so that's empire of the dead there's three volumes they're available on comiXology to purchase well worth checking out okay mine's a, a comic it's marvel comic as well i am catching up with the jason aaron run on thor and i'm currently into his goddess of thunder which is when thor is replaced by uh, a female thor and jason aaron's work is is always outstanding uh, really thoroughly loved uh, Southern Bastards, which should have been a, a film that starred uh, Lee Marvin. But his run on this is absolutely superb. He takes the Jane Foster character, gives her cancer, but then gives her the ability that runs back to the very, very first issues of, of, of Thor, where she could swap personas and become the embodiment of the God of Thunder, or in this case, the Goddess of Thunder. I'm currently reading The Elf Wars, which is a fantastic run. The art is beautiful. It's original and it's unique and it's a different take on a character that's been around for near on 50 years. And it looks like this could be the premise for Thor, Love and Thunder. Uh, excellent run, highly enjoyable, big fan of Jason Aaron, big fan of this book. And that's it for this week, folks. We'll be back next week with another film file. In the meantime, Andy, looking forward to getting back into the cinemas. You'll be pretty much nearly open by the time we record next week's show, yes, I'm guessing. Uh, we should be only days away. So it's going to be busy, busy, busy over the coming week. And I cannot wait to be exhausted every night. <laughs> looking forward to getting back into the cinema very, very soon. I'll see you next week. I can't do this show without Andy Meakin because, well, he is the guru that this show is based on. Cheers, Andy. I'll see you next week. See you next time. And there's no such thing as society. And even if there was, I most certainly have nothing to do with it. Thank you.